I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. We're finishing up our run-through structure with 2004's Dodgeball, written and directed by Rawson Marshall Thurber. Dodgeball is probably Thurber's most well-known writing project to date. As a screenwriter, he adapted Michael Chabon's novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, and as a director, he's slated to direct a Cannonball Run remake. Now, it's been a while since I've seen Cannonball Run. I was 10 when it came out in theaters, and that probably was the last time I saw it. But I hear tell that it is structurally nigh perfect, so it's on my list of things to check out. It'll be interesting to see how the new one turns out. Dodgeball is an interesting movie. I've been using it in my classes for years because comedies typically have some of the cleanest and most elegant conflicts and structures. The reason for this is simple. Most people who are doing comedies are not terribly interested in redefining the form. The simpler and more direct your conflict and structure, the more room you have in the story to pack the jokes in. For a comedy, the underlying story is just a delivery mechanism for the jokes, and that usually makes the conflict and structure pretty easy to identify, which makes it ideal for teaching. And the conflict in Dodgeball is direct. It's beautifully and simply constructed, complete with specific goals and a time lock. The structure has some issues, all of which can be traced back to a weak protagonist. But before we get into all that, in a situation that is not dissimilar to the one we faced in His Girl Friday, I want to address some of the critical problems with Dodgeball very quickly. Once again, we will be revisiting Dodgeball when we get to advanced criticism, and we will be having a more full and complex discussion of the social issues at play in this movie. But I do want to acknowledge the casual misogyny that runs throughout this movie. And when I say casual misogyny, that phrase is in no way meant to excuse it. Casual misogyny is worse than direct intentional misogyny because it hides behind jokes and sends subliminal messages about the value of women. I'm only kidding, it says, as it demeans every single woman in the movie. I find it especially offensive in this context because Dodgeball is a movie about loving the misfit as long as he's a man. Vince Vaughn can have dad bod and still be a romantic hero, but if the women have any flaws, they are the butts of jokes. So what this movie is saying is that it's okay to be a misfit if you're a man. If you're a woman, you must be skinny, beautiful, smart, capable, good at sports, and willing to do a threesome with Vince Vaughn in order to be considered not a full human, but just desirable. That's the best you can hope for if you are perfect in every other way. Women are objects in this movie. They are possessions, they are trophies, they are decoration. For a movie whose entire message is about acceptance and embracing your weirdness, if you're a man, the mean-spirited and sometimes outright hateful treatment of women in this movie is incredibly disturbing. And lest you think that I have been so offended by the misogyny in Dodgeball that I have failed to see the racism, do not fret, my pretty. We have three characters of color in this movie, the female of which, Gordon's wife, isn't even named, and they are all sidelined throughout the story. Dwight is the only major character without any story at all. Michelle is a caricature antagonist sidekick, and Mrs. Gordon is a hateful and one-note mail-order bride. It is disappointing to say the least. But 
that's not what we're here to discuss today. I just want anyone who found those elements of the movie infuriating to know that I agree. And if you didn't see those elements, that does not make you a bad person or a bad feminist. I have loved this movie for years. And while I've noticed these elements before, I have never found them as wholly disgusting as I did on this time around. I've been working through the script with students for the past few semesters, and these elements are less in your face in the script, which has some variation from the movie. Watching the movie again was kind of a stark experience for me, and trust me, we will be having a full discussion of this movie, both the bad and the good, when we get to advanced criticism. Dodgeball is a funny movie in a lot of ways. I think the pepper and cotton stuff in the tournament is absolute genius, and I don't think I've ever loved Gary Cole or Jason Bateman more. When it comes to conflict and structure, Dodgeball is a great example to look at because it is so clearly and simply stated, leaving loads of room for the jokes, which is what you want from a comedy. If anyone is having trouble with the conflict and structure concepts, turn to comedies. They are typically very simply and elegantly structured, and they are great for developing your analytical skills. One of the ones that I would absolutely recommend is Happy Gilmore, and we may be taking a look at that sometime later. I love that movie. So let's get started with dodgeball. The first step, as always, is identifying the central narrative conflict. And as I stated before, this is one of the simplest and most directly stated central narrative conflicts you're going to see. However, we do have some complication when it comes to the protagonist. So let's veer a bit off the beaten path and address that up front, as the protagonist issues we have here are going to affect the rest of the structure. And it's a good example of why our rules for protagonists exist. To revisit, the rules for a protagonist are they have to be our POV character, they have to be actively moving the story forward in pursuit of their goal, and they have to have the most at stake. Dodgeball actually features our first group protagonist. Peter LaFleur is absolutely our POV character, and since it's his gym on the line, he technically has the most at stake, so we're two for three with Peter. But the problem with Peter? He's passive. He gives up at almost every step along the way, and it is only the group that provides the motive force for the rest of the story by pushing Peter along on his path that makes the movie work at all. So the group protagonist dynamic helps to patch up the passive protagonist problem, but doesn't fix it entirely, as we will see when we work through our anchor scenes. Let's get back to the central narrative conflict, which is beautifully simple and very direct. Our protagonist is Peter and the average Joes, who want to win the dodgeball tournament in order to make $50,000 in 30 days so that they can pay off the default on the mortgage and keep average Joes under Peter's control. Our antagonist is White Goodman, who wants to win the dodgeball tournament to prevent Peter from being able to pay off the mortgage, thus letting average Joes fall into White's control so he can turn it into a parking structure. Now we stop for a mutual exclusivity check. Can both Average Joes and Globo Jim win the dodgeball tournament at the same time? No. But let's also check the underlying actual goals as well. Can White turn Average Joes into a parking structure while Peter keeps it up and running? No. So we've cleared the mutual exclusivity hurdle. Remember when we were talking about goals, we talked about ASPA? The goal here is a wonderful example of how ASPA works. A is for active, and you can't win a tournament of any kind without being in active pursuit of the goal, so we're good there. 
S is for specific, and the specificity of this goal is a thing of beauty. They have to make $50,000 in 30 days or he's going to lose his gym, so they have to win this dodgeball tournament. There are levels upon levels of specificity here, and they all work to make the goal solid and easy to understand, which is fantastic. P is for personal, and we see from the beginning how personal Average Joe's is to everyone involved. It's the place where they go and are accepted for who they are, where no one expects them to be anything else. For each of these misfits, Average Joe's is a safe space, and that's extremely personal. Where the personal element doesn't work quite so well is actually with Peter. Yes, it's his gym, his business, his livelihood, but he doesn't seem to care that much and is always the first to throw in the towel. This is another area where the group protagonist saves Peter's narrative bacon, and it functions, but it's not ideal. The last A is for achievable. While they are underdogs, winning the dodgeball tournament is achievable for them within the span of the story, so we're all set there. The thing that makes Aspagols great for comedies is that they are so direct and clear. The more direct and clear your narrative elements, such as goal and motivation, the less time you have to spend explaining why all this matters, why we should care. And the less time you spend doing that, the more time and space you have for the jokes, which is why comedies exist, to highlight the jokes. All right, so now we've covered all of that. Let's get to our structure. We open with eight minutes of expositional blah, blah, blah. White Goodman's Global Gym commercial establishing him as the bad guy. We see that Peter LaFleur is a screw-up, but he's an affable and charming screw-up who shows incredible kindness to almost everyone, so we let it pass. At minute nine, which is a little bit late for my taste, we finally get to our inciting incident. When Peter strolls into his office to find Kate Veach there, and she delivers the news. You have 30 days to pay off $50,000 or you lose your gym to White Goodman. Clearly stated goal and consequence, and we are off to the races. Our next anchor scene is at the end of Act 1, when Gordon comes up with the idea to play dodgeball to win the money that they need. Peter agrees, after having just given up entirely, and while his investment in the scheme isn't strong, the enthusiasm and dedication from the rest of the group keeps that motive force going. Next is our midpoint, which happens after they've won the first match against the Girl Scout troop. Well, one, maybe stretching it a bit, but still. After celebrating at the bar, Peter meets up with Patches O'Houlihan in the parking lot. The dodgeball legend offers his coaching services, and Peter accepts on behalf of the team. And here is where I think some of you might argue with me, and I can definitely see your point. Some of you may be thinking, well, if the anchor scenes are about the escalating conflict, wouldn't the midpoint be when White and his dodgeball team show up and say they're going to snake the tournament away from average Joes? I think you have a strong argument for that scene, and anyone who chooses that over the scene with Patches has my respect. It's a solid argument. The reason why I chose the moment with Patches as the midpoint is because White's little display in the bar doesn't really change Peter's relationship with the conflict. It adds another layer and definitely escalates things, but Peter himself doesn't really see the problem any differently. It's when he goes out into the parking lot and gets the offer from Patches that Peter starts to seem to care a little. He's willing to bring this crazy old guy into his team so that they can win. He's taking a risk. He's being active. And considering how freaking passive Peter is throughout much of the story, that's what pushes this over the edge as my choice for midpoint. But I think a good argument can be made for either scene. Next is the fourth anchor scene, our second turning point, No Way Out But Through. And this moment, once again, is really weak for me. 
Because of Peter's essential passivity, this place where we're looking for an active choice that once again pushes the conflict forward, it's tough to find. In the end, I chose the moment when he goes to Kate's house to ask her to play on the average Joe's team. This shows Peter committing to the goal and pursuing it actively. Is it no way out but through? Eh, not really. Peter could turn back at any point, really, and as we're about to see, he will. But it's an active moment, so I'm giving it to him. When we get to the part of how story works where we use what we know to fix problematic stories, we might need to revisit Dodgeball. But for now, just take the note. A passive protagonist is nobody's friend. We move forward into the extended third act. Remember how we talked about trial structure with A Few Good Men? Here we have this again, only instead of a legal trial, it's a physical trial, the dodgeball tournament. We finally get to our dark moment after Patches dies, and White offers Peter money to give up and sign over his gym. Although we don't see what Peter's actual decision is, when he comes back down to the bar and tells everyone they're going to lose anyway and it doesn't matter, and then is mean to Steve the Pirate, we see Peter's dark moment. He's giving up, because that's what he does. But in his defense, he didn't give up as much as Daniel Caffey, so at least he's got that going for him. We move forward through to the finals when Average Joe's almost has to forfeit into the finals, into the sudden death round, and we get our climactic moment. Average Joe's wins the dodgeball tournament. And here's the problem. When Peter signs the lease on Average Joe's over to White, the conflict is over. And when the conflict is over, the story is over. At that point, White has won. The goal was to win the dodgeball tournament, and the dodgeball tournament is still happening, but that goal was layered onto the base goal, which was about saving Average Joes. With Average Joes lost, the dodgeball tournament loses its meaning. Now, granted, at this moment, we as the audience don't have clarity on the fact that Peter signed over his gym. We just know that he's given up on the tournament. But still, it's a messy, confusing climax. And even when we win, we've lost, except that we have more information we weren't privy to before. That Peter put the money down on average Joe's with 50 to 1 odds and won enough money to buy out a controlling share in Globo Gym, thus getting his gym back and taking White's gym from him. For a movie that started out with such a clear, lovely, specific conflict, it sure gets muddy and convoluted there at the end. Yeah, I think we're going to have to revisit Dodgeball when we get to the fix-it portion of the course, because damn. Then we move into our resolution, which shows us that Peter gets the gym and the girl, Steve reconnects with his inner pirate, Owen gets his girl and Fran, Justin gets Amber and knocks her up, which I guess is supposed to be funny, and hey, it doesn't matter that he ruined her life because Justin got to have sex. Dwight and Gordon are the only ones who don't get a resolution to their stories. Dwight because they never bothered to give him a story, and Gordon because, I don't know. But since Dwight and Gordon have their arms around each other in the final Average Joe's commercial at the end, I like to headcanon that they found love with each other and are having their own happily ever after. And while the good ended well, we see that White Goodman has gotten fat again, and because he's fat, now he has absolutely no inherent human value. Okay. I know it sounds like I hate this movie, and don't get me wrong, I hate parts of this movie, but there are a lot of things to love about Dodgeball as well, and I don't think that you can truly love something if you're not willing to see everything about it and to consider it complexly. This is true of people and of narrative. 
Next week, we're finally going to have that pacing discussion that I've been promising, where I look at the anchor scenes for all five movies that we've discussed for structure and analyze the pacing for each. There will be downloadable PDFs with the anchor scenes laid out along a timeline to help you visualize how pacing works for each of these movies. So be sure to visit the show notes when you get the episode next week so it can help you visualize what I'm talking about. If you have questions about how Story works, call 302-643-CHIP. That's 302-643-2447 and leave a message. Or you can email me at Lonnie at Chipperish.com or contact me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich or at Chipperish with the hashtag HowStoryWorks. How Story Works is a free college-level course in narrative theory and is entirely supported by listener donations. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep it in production and gain access to exclusive chipperish content and a community of amazing smart people. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish for more information. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>